You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month, we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Our guest today is Dr. Ray Bat Venice. Ray is a is a retired special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, he go, he went on after that career uh, to a career in uh, both academe as well as uh, uh, writing and lecturing. He was also uh, the executive director of the J Edgar Hoover Foundation at one point. Uh, so I wanted to ask Ray uh, in to talk about the current film, J. Edgar, the Clint Eastwood production. And let me just say, uh, in introducing the subject, Ray is steeped in the subject both having been in the Bureau as well as having authored uh, a book called The Origins of FBI Counterintelligence, uh, which came out in 2007 and is now available in paperback. So, Ray, before we get into the film, let me just step back for a moment. When did you join the Bureau? I joined uh, the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation in July of 1972. It was about two and a half months after Hoover's death. Oh, it was it was so that so who it was still Hoover's FBI that you joined. We joke, uh, we joke actually uh, when we were in new agents training that the instructors that we had really didn't believe that Hoover had died, that he had just sort of gone away and was going to be coming back. So they were very, very careful about their behavior at that time. All right, why don't we just start from there, Ray? Okay. Tell me, when you entered the Bureau, um, it was Hoover's Bureau. What was, what was, what was your sense of Hoover, even as a, as a young officer? Because undoubtedly changes would start to come but that was probably still mature, or were they beginning to come already? Uh, I think they they began to come in the immediate wake of his death. There were revolutionary changes. I think it has to be borne in mind that Hoover served for 48 years in, as the director of the FBI, 55 years in the Department of Justice. So there were men and women who joined the FBI, retired from the FBI, whose children joined the FBI and retired from the FBI, and Hoover was still on board. So Hoover's imprint was on that entire bureau, top to bottom, side to side. The changes really began in the immediate aftermath of 
uh, his death. Uh, I had a, a, a direct experience with that because two and a half months after Hoover's death, I joined the FBI, and the first two women, uh, they, 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 that was a class. That class had the first two women uh, special agents, and it was moving so rapidly that the, uh, that the organization was not set up for women, but they were having uh, women uh, uh, join the FBI. We had just started the, uh, the uh, FBI Academy, a brand new FBI Academy had been stood up. There were no, there were no gym facilities for women. There were no uh, locker facilities. This is in for Quantico. Women. This is in Quantico. There were no housing. There were, there were no policies uh, in terms of uh, having women come on board. So these women who came on, these two women who became FBI, who were true pioneers. And that was really when it began to change, and that's when it really began to, to uh, I wouldn't say morph into a different organization, but, uh, but changes began to take place. Are there any number of anecdotes uh, about the Hoover period and what it was like to be in the Bureau then, the, the, the stories about not liking, liking officers with sweaty palms, exiling people to Butte, uh, uh, No Left Turns, that famous book that, that about Hoover, can you just give us a, a little feel, a little color for Hoover's FBI, which certainly was still there when you walked through those front doors? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, I, I heard. Uh, I've always heard the stories, of course, about uh, Hoover, and uh, there were always uh, sort of jokes about Hoover and the weight program. He would hire linebackers and then immediately insist that they become running backs in terms of their weight. There were stories, uh, I think it was the Metropolitan Life Insurance weight scale that he used. He insisted on the Metropolitan Life Insurance weight scale, and they had to maintain that weight scale. And the uh, awkward issue uh, that arose was when Mr. Hoover gained weight and exceeded the weight scale. Nobody had the courage to go to Hoover and say, uh, if, he, if, he if he expected to maintain his career, no one went to Hoover and, um, uh, and brought this up to him. Another one was uh, the story about his name, Speed. And he got the name Speed, the nickname Speed, as a, as a very young man, uh, as a child, actually. And uh, he got it because he, was a, uh, he, he lived on Seward Place over by Eastern Market in Washington, D.C., and he would... Uh, stand outside of the Eastern Market. There were no supermarkets at this time. This is at the turn of the 20th century. And he got the name because um, uh, he, uh, he would stand outside, and for a dime, when the ladies came out with these large grocery bags, he would grab the grocery bag, race it to their home, and come back, and he would get a, a dime. And that's how he got the name Speed. There were uh, men who would be promoted and they would call him, okay, one or two had the audacity to call him Speed, they would promptly be demoted. And then, of course, there's the famous story about Bill Sullivan, when William Sullivan, who was the head of the intelligence division, one of his assistant directors, he fell afoul of J. Edgar Hoover, who Sullivan was famous because he was, uh, had, a, had, a, had a key operating role in the COINTEL program, 
against the Ku Klux Klan, against the CPUSA, against the uh, against Martin Luther King. This is the one that came under criticism by the Church Correct. Committee. Correct. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And Hoover was a very non-confrontational kind of guy. The persona of him is that he was uh, he was confrontational bulldog. Really, quite not quite not the case at all. He had all, he would routinely have his surrogates do his dirty work for him. And in the case of Bill Sullivan, for example, uh, rather than tell Sullivan he was fired, what happened was Sullivan came to work one day, as he did uh, uh, for years and years and years, and he stuck his key in the lock. Didn't work because overnight Hoover had changed the locks on his uh, door. And that was his way of saying to Mr. Sullivan, your persona non grata with me from this point forward. Uh, there, are, there are legendaries. I remember the story, perhaps, of uh, Watch the Borders. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. Watch the Borders. He was very scrupulous about the borders on paper, around the paper. And if you exceeded the borders, uh, if you exceeded the borders, then he would get uh, worked up on any document that came up there. Well, there were uh, assistant directors who were so intimidated by him, they didn't have a clue what watch the borders meant, so they began to put extra surveillance on the borders around the United States, thinking that this is what he meant, simply because they didn't have the courage to ask him, what the name of goodness are you talking about? So these, are, these stories are legendary. Um, in my upcoming book, I tell the story about an FBI agent by the name of Arthur Thurston, a wonderful, wonderful man. I interviewed him a number of years for my new book, which is coming up called Hoover's War, deals with uh, the FBI activities during the Second World War. And Thurston told wonderful stories about when he was assigned to San Francisco. And when Hoover went to San Francisco, Hoover would always go to the Cow Palace in San Francisco because the great stripper, Sally Rand, had the Sally Rand Nude Ranch program on, and she would perform out there. So, I mean, these stories of him are just absolutely legendary, and many of them are hilarious. They really are. But, you know, it, it's probably not unexpected that someone who was given such authority and power so early and at such a young age that their personality really there was nothing to inhibit them in other words and then to serve in that capacity for 48 for 48 years we shouldn't be surprised if some of these little petty things about borders and so forth and so on so didn't take on a life of their own and as you and i both know in any large organization People do fix on the head of it, and they pick up every little thing, and, and some things are very funny. In some ways, those figures can become very intimidating because they're invulnerable. They've always been there. Well, let's do this. Let's, let's maybe the, the best thing to do, let's turn to the film. Uh, and the film depicts uh, a young Hoover uh, who actually, and this surprised me in the film, apparently contributed to the... Uh, establishment of a filing system for the Library of Congress. Do you know if there's any truth to that? Yes, there is. While he was, um, just, just briefly in background, he was responsible for the financial support of his mother and father. His father was fired by the Department of Commerce because his father uh, had developed either a, a, a serious depression or a mental illness, 
and um, his, his two older siblings, Lillian and Dickerson, were already out of the house. And it has to be borne in mind that at this time, we're talking 1912, 1913, unlike today, there was no health insurance. There was no retirement insurance. There was no retirement period. And when I was working for the Hoover Foundation, we actually have the message, it was very, very cold, the, very, the message that the government sent to him informing him that it was no long, he was no longer employed with the government. And you are probably familiar with the term pink slip. Yes. Well, that's where it comes from, because he got a pink message simply saying that you're no longer employed. So Hoover now, as the youngest in the family, he has to start working while he's going to school. And that's where he worked. He worked in the Library of Congress. And the file system that he, uh, uh, he applied to the FBI was largely based on the file system used by the Library of Congress in terms of cataloging books, cataloging manuscripts, cataloging photographs. So this is what he applied to uh, the, the formulation of the, of the massive files that the Bureau acquired, or accrued rather, during, uh, during his lifetime. But it also shows his, uh, 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 the stress that he placed on records and files and traces and, and of course, the forensics of everything, which, you know, the fingerprints and so forth. I mean, it was formed right there in those early years. Correct. And you and I yeah. know, you and yeah. I know from our own professional backgrounds yeah. that if you're in an intelligence organization, a law enforcement organization, a counterintelligence organization, this is what I stress and emphasize to my students all the time, your files are your lifeblood. If you don't have current, excellent file system that you can go back to and you can refer to, then, it, then you are, you're an incompetent organization. And he recognized that right from the very beginning. If you can't find it, you don't know it. Correct. As an organization. Exactly. Can you comment uh, on the basis of your research and just sort of knowledge from other officers, do you have any sense of what his relationship with his mother was? Yes. I ask that because the film makes quite a bit of that as a, as a theme. There is no, I, I, we don't really have time to get into sure. it. I, I thought Judy Dench, she, she's one of my favorite act, actors, and she, uh, she, I was really surprised that, I mean, I, I thought she did a wonderful job. I did too. Uh, and uh, I thought all the cast was terrific. But um, there, is, based on what we know, he had a very loving relationship. Uh, there wasn't a dysfunctional relationship at all, to my knowledge. It was a very functional relationship. And uh, he, he, he cared for his mother very much. And as I pointed out earlier, he was responsible for her, uh, for her uh, income. So he uh, had a very, very strong feeling for his mother. His mother loved him very much. She was tremendously proud of him. We have records in the Hoover... Uh, the the are the, the Hoover Foundation the Hoover collection of records now is with the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial uh, their new it's going to be in their new museum and we there are letters from Hoover mother and father to him and the evidence is very, is very clear that uh, this was a loving relationship and we have and when he was I can't recall but in the 30s he's giving a speech in New York and she sent a telegram to him. Uh, commending him uh, for uh, the, the, I'm so proud of you. Uh, 
the movie goes into the issue of, and I, I don't want to get into the movie, like, but it goes into the issue of the dancing and gets into the issue of his putting on his mother's dress. I mean, there's no evidence of that kind of dysfunction at all. Uh, what's interesting, too, and I'll just close on this, uh, is the fact that when his mother passed away, his mother passed away in February of 1938, that was a liberation for him. Within a year, he sold the house, the family house on Seward Place where he was born. He was born in the house in 1895. So he'd lived in this house for 43 years. He sold the house and then sold the furniture and immediately moved to a new life at his house on 30th Place, which I think is very revealing. Yeah. I want to make a distinction here uh, for, for the, the, the people listening, because I agree with you, and we chatted earlier, I think the film as a film was fascinating and extremely well done. I thought DiCaprio did a great job. I thought Judy Dench did a great job. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking to you about is trying to look not so much at the film as a work of art, but what is the reality? In other words, what sure. was Hoover really like? What was the relation? So I want to make that distinction. I thought the movie itself, uh, I thought was, you know, a, a quite an effective film as a film. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, working from that script. Um, one of the things that, that the film makes something of, and this has come up from time to time in, in treatments of that period, mm -hmm. Um, particularly of Hoover's later years, his relationships with presidents, President Nixon, President Kennedy, and so forth. And that was um, his willingness, if you will, to use information in a very, very political, coercive way. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that? The um, Sort of, to not to rephrase that question, but come sure, at it from, another, from, a come yeah. at it from another perspective. My view of, of Hoover, based on my research, uh, the, the word I, I use is the gatekeeper. What is comes through repeatedly was that he would be either he would either he would either be called upon by these presidents to often to do personal dirty work, often to do political dirty work. He willingly did it. And I speculate that he did it, not necessarily because he wanted to do it, but my opinion is he didn't want to lose his job, in part, okay? He, didn't, he recognized that he served at the pleasure of the president, and this was his organization. And he was willing to do the dirty work for the president. Case in point, I mentioned this in my book, he was always getting Elliot Roosevelt out of trouble. Elliot Roosevelt uh, was the son of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, in one particular case, Elliot got, uh, was, got into the business of radio stations and got into an, uh, an awkward situation financially and got into an awkward, he hired as his publicity director a known criminal who was involved in a, in, a, in a criminal conspiracy with a judge in New York. When Franklin D. Roosevelt found this out, he calls on Hoover and basically tells Hoover, get the kid out of this. And Hoover does this. In another case, Elliot, during the war, was given a political generalship. And uh, his, uh, 
he left a, a, a classified documents either in a safe and forgot about them and they were taken across country by a friend of his and the friend lost the documents the documents were turned into the FBI Hoover quietly took the documents and gave them to the president the documents were never seen again and Elliot avoided a uh, uh, Elliot avoided a court-martial well these uh, the the Inga Arvad issue do you remember the Inga Arvad issue and a young robust John F Kennedy having this affair with a um, uh, with a woman who's under investigation as being a Nazi spy and this is brought to the attention of the president is brought to the attention of Joe Kennedy to have him dis, uh, distance himself from this woman. Tommy Corcoran during the Truman administration uh, and uh, where Truman ordered continued wiretaps by the so Hoover was the gatekeeper and Hoover had all of these files whether he actually used the files or just the existence of the files was sufficient to run a cold chill down a political a politician's back you know that uh, that that's that's the key factor what here. was that was it uh, and you might well know this uh, what was her name Gandhi the his secretary Helen Gandhi yes Helen, Helen Gandhi. Gandhi was his longtime uh, secretary did she, was it was it a fact that she did an that she did uh, shred a number of files upon his I believe death. she did. Yeah. I believe that she did shred some files, but I can't say that with any great degree of certainty. Uh, but I believe she did uh, uh, try to shred some files. But you have to, you know, I'm not, I'm not justifying it. But, you know, the, people talk about the secret files of the FBI. Yes. The reality was that all of the files uh, were secret. What, may, what, what released them to the public, actually, was uh, the Freedom of Information Privacy Act, which was passed well after his, well, not well after his death, but five or six years after his death in the wake of the Watergate scandal. Yes. And in the wake of uh, government efforts to improve transparency on surveillance with regard to the issue of government surveillance of, um, of Americans. And this is where it all began to uh, uh, see the light of day. All of these files. There were there were uh, there were files that that he had completely forgotten about. Over Ray, you're a dogged researcher. Did Mrs. Gandhi ever speak publicly, or was she ever interviewed? She was never. She, to my knowledge, Peter, she never spoke publicly of. Uh, her relationship with J. Edgar Hoover. It was uh, a, it was a purely professional relationship. Um, he did date Helen Gandy when, in the in the early twenties. As depicted in the film. As depicted in the, in the film. film. Yes, uh -huh. he he did date Miss Gandy, and um, uh, the the uh, the relationship uh, did not go anywhere. Uh, but he recognized Helen Gandy as a very efficient secretary. And she devoted, and she was Miss Gandy. She never, uh, she never married, uh, to my knowledge. She never had a any relationships. But I, I don't know that. But she was devoted to the FBI for her entire career, and she was, she was the gatekeeper for Hoover. Okay, there is. I mean, she, she, uh, she, she knew exactly what was going on, and she knew. Uh, uh, she knew Hoover, who Hoover wanted to talk to, who didn't want, did not want to talk to. She sat there. There was a system whereby, if you and I were on the telephone, if I'm Hoover and you're 
someone and you're on the telephone with me, she would listen in to that phone call and she would listen in in order to transcribe the gist of the conversation so that there'd be a file or a piece of paper that Hoover could later refer to. She knew everything. I, I think that in a set, in a way that brings us to perhaps one of the, the more controversial aspects of the film. You did comment on the, the dress scene, which, you know, I took as a form, uh, although nobody can know whether that ever occurred. Right. Um, there have been these allegations he wore a dress, which I think most serious scholars and others have simply dismissed. Right. Uh, the way uh, depicted in the film, it's sort of, in a sense, his grieving for his mother and mourning her loss, which I don't think is wholly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But I think probably the most controversial part of the film for those who know that period, who followed uh, Hoover's career, is the relationship with Clyde Tolson. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on that, Ray? There is zero evidence. Uh, and I mean, that was my, that was my background. Um, I mean, I, as an FBI agent for 25 years, I mean, I base conclusions on evidence, not on innuendo, not on suspicion. Uh, but there is zero evidence that uh, Hoover and Tolson had a uh, had anything other than a friendship and a as well as a professional relationship. They were very close friends. Uh, illustrative of that, in my opinion, is a, again another photograph that we have in the collection uh, that's in the Hoover collection, and um, these two men met in the uh, mid to late 1920s. And there's a photograph of, a photograph of Tolson to Hoover, and which is not uncommon for your listeners, that is not uncommon, in fact it was quite common that officials of government would send a photograph to another official of government, to so-and-so, uh, best wishes uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower or Harry Truman or Franklin D. Roosevelt. Very, very common for this to happen. Tolson sent a photograph, a posed photograph in a business suit, and it says, to speed, my best friend. And I believe that's what they were. I mean, uh, they, they worked together. They got older. I think life tended to pass them by in terms of a personal life outside of the Bureau. Uh, but that is... Um, that is how I would characterize their relationship. You know, one thing that one can only know, really, by asking someone who was inside, mm -hmm. was their relationship the subject of sort of titillation or speculation, or was it simply they just were very, very close, and you know, and 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 that was it. It was not because, after all, I think in many cases when when they traveled. The Bureau kept an eye on them for security purposes, Correct. and that made sense. And so if there was anything suspect or sort of suggestive, it certainly would have been part of a gossip within the organization. Correct. Were you ever privy to anything like that? Nothing like that. Nothing like I, that. I've interviewed, I've interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of agents who knew Hoover, who worked around Hoover, agents who were not only devoted to him, but who, agents whose careers were derailed because of Hoover. And they railed against Hoover, but they never, ever made comments like that. They said they had no evidence of this at all with regard 
uh, to Hoover. In fact, Tolson, uh, kind of uh, anecdotally, when it came to the, his senior, his executive conference, the men who made up his executive conference, his, um, his assistant directors and deputy assistant directors, they would often go to Tolson and they'd say, Clyde, what kind of mood is the old man in today, okay? I have to bring something to him. Can, can you gauge it? Oh, he said, yeah, he's fine today. Or, no, I wouldn't go talk to him today. There was that kind. He was sort of a, a bit of a buffer, okay? And he was very, very um, useful uh, to the, and he had, a, he, he had, according to people I've spoken to, he had very good wisdom about things. Uh, the one thing that, uh, again, this may be a little bit off the topic, but the one thing that Hoover had, uh, one reason why he was so successful, I think, in large measure, was that it, 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 there's a tendency to fail to recognize this, that in the earlier days, his assistant director stayed on for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. So they had a built-in experience of having burned their fingers, of having successes, of having institutional knowledge, which was very, very useful to Hoover in order to give him informed guidance as to how to proceed, okay? Now, this doesn't mean he agreed with them all the time, okay? And uh, as he said, they would take a vote, and if 12 said no, and he said yes. Yes was the decision that was going to be made. But who? But Tolson was very, very important uh, in the in the scheme of things. But he was a quiet presence, yeah. so to speak. And indeed, in the in the movie, he is depicted as a wise yes. counselor. He takes stands, to, suggesting to Hoover that Hoover right. may be doing something that uh, would be inappropriate. Did and let me ask you one last question. Did uh, Clyde Tolson? He was the associate director. Did he actually carry executive weight, or was he more the counselor to Hoover and the wise man on the seventh That's course? a very good Floor. question, and uh, it's it's rather hard to it, it's rather difficult to sort through. When you go back and you look at the files, uh, I, I've spent over the past couple of years a lot of time in the Second World War. Okay, and when you go back and you look at the in, internal files, they pass through the associate director. And when, uh, but there's, I don't recall any evidence where he signs off and says, go ahead and do this. It's reviewed by the associate director and then goes on to Hoover. I think there's a, there's a mythology that Hoover was, had his fingers directing all of these investigations. The evidence, in my opinion, is, uh, is it's just not there. The, the investigations were being conducted, at least in the time that I'm looking at, they would go up to Edward Tam, who was the number three man and the operational director. He, uh, he ran the investigations. And then things like wiretapping, electronic surveillance, a microphone, uh, a, a, an, an excessive expenditure where they had to perhaps an informant that had to be paid a large amount of money or something that was controversial it would go up to Hoover and he would be asked he be asked to make the decision or in many cases he would simply be informed of what's going on and he would come back and say yeah well pay attention to this or watch this or do we really know what we're doing here you know that kind of thing that any executive who has confidence in his subordinates would would ask 
Ray, uh, I haven't had a chance really to talk with you at length since you saw the film. Uh, before we end, do you have any other comments you would like to make on the film? I was pleased uh, in, in many respects uh, because, I, I, first of all, I thought the cast was first rate. I'm a, I'm a very... Uh, uh, I'm a big fan of Leonardo DiCaprio. I think he's a wonderful actor. I think he's got a lot of depth, and I think he really captured Hoover's style. Uh, what I was, I, I would just tell your listeners that it's important for you to know your history, know the chronology, because uh, again, I was disappointed because as a biopic, uh, it was it, it was compressed and uh, and confusing to a person, I believe, who doesn't understand uh, the history. I can understand, and I try to understand the business of uh, movie making, and I understand that, uh, the, uh, that, the screen that the screenwriters and the directors have to take license, but it just seemed that they went, uh, that, that it was, um, that it, they went off course on this thing. Uh, it was, it was, the flashbacks and the, the Well, I don't mind the flashback, yeah. but the flashback, the, it was the sequencing. Okay. Uh, you would go from the, it, the, the movie would go, for example, a flashback to the Lindbergh kidnapping, and they're placing the Lindbergh kidnapping at the, in the same time frame that Hoover is now discussing war issues with the President of the United States. They're, they're talking about his file on... Eleanor Roosevelt before the President Roosevelt is elected, okay? I mean, all of these juxtapositions that, in my opinion, would tend to confuse a viewer rather than explain the narrative uh, to the viewer. I had, I, I fully support and think it's a good idea to, I thought it was a clever trick the way they did it. I don't mean that in a negative sense, having that young agent sitting there and, uh, uh, interviewing Hoover and taking down so that it helps explain what went on. But my only complaint with them, of course, I, I, I had serious reservations about the sort of the salacious issue at the end because, again, based on evidence, there's nothing there. But even uh, the, the juxtaposition of these different uh, events uh, tells me that Americans, if they're going to watch this movie, should really understand the history of Hoover's 48 years. Uh, in the Bureau and 55 years in DOJ. Well, Ray, let me thank you so much again for coming in today. Let me thank you for what you've done as a researcher and author in your retirement years to help the American people understand these periods and what was really going on. And, uh, and I hope you'll come back and rejoin us. Thank you so much. Ray. Thank you very much. And, uh, and invite me back anytime, Peter. I'd appreciate it. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.